0: U.S. Navy history, arriving. Welcome back to the United States
1: History Podcast. My name is Dale, and I'm joined, as always, by my executive officer, Stephen.
2: Ugh, bilge is clean, Captain.
1: All right, we'll get you pumping out there again later. Because, you know, these wooden sailing vessels, they leak.
2: Yeah, I can't wait till we replace it with something newer, less leaky, and prone to sinking.
1: It's going to be a while. (laughs) So, we're going to continue on with the War of 1812. Let's get underway. So, earlier in London, on May 11th, an assassin killed Prime Minister Spencer Percival, which resulted in Lord Liverpool coming to power. Liverpool wanted a more practical relationship with the U.S. On June 23rd, he actually repealed the orders in council, But, of course, because of communications, the US was unaware of this. Because it took, why, it took, like you calculated last week, three weeks for the news to cross the Atlantic. On June 28th, the HMS Colabri was dispatched from Halifax under a white flag of truce for New York. On July 9th, she anchored off of Sandy Hook, and three days later, sailed back to England with a copy of the declaration of war with the British ambassador, Mr. Foster, and the council, Colonel Barclay. She arrived in Halifax, Nova Scotia, eight days later, and the news of declaration of war took even longer to reach London. In response to this declaration of war, Isaac Brooke issued a proclamation alerting the citizenry of Upper Canada of the state of war and urging all military personnel... Quote, to be vigilant in the discharge of their duty, and to prevent communication with the enemy, and to arrest anyone suspected of helping the Americans.
2: So, do we know why that Prime Minister was assassinated? I, I can only assume it was something unrelated. Because last week, you know, war was declared, and then this week you open with, and the Prime Minister is assassinated. <laughs> it's like, holy crap! American agents right out the gate going for the leadership,
1: Wow! Uh, well, he was shot dead in the lobby of the House of Commons by a man named John Bellingham. which is a mer- He was a merchant in Liverpool, and with a grievance against the government. He was caught, tried, convicted, and sentenced to death. He was hanged one week after the assassination. And fun fact, Percival remains the only British Prime Minister to have been assassinated.
2: So completely unrelated, just... Weird timing. Yeah, he ticked off his own people, and his own people decided to take him out. And so the new guy, less of a war hawk, probably won't know, ever, how much he was willing to uh, compromise with America in regards to the UK trying to play Big Brother. But as soon as he sent over the document saying, hey, guys, let's sit and talk, the ship arrived and it's like, oh, oh, that's a declaration of war. We probably don't need this one anymore. This seems a little more pressing.
1: Pretty much, yeah. We come in peace. Well, we're going to shoot to kill.
2: God, how many conflicts could have been avoided if email had been invented a few centuries earlier?
1: Or just being able to transverse the Atlantic faster. Instead of wind, steam. Instead of a three-week trip, do it in a week. Did it really cut
2: down that much time?
1: It did. Wow. It cut off a lot of time. Because you didn't have to worry about being becalmed. Oh, yeah. Now, it ate up a lot of coal, especially those first transatlantic liners. But it made it faster. Uh, Let's see, where was I? All right. So, the outbreak of the war had been preceded by years of angry diplomatic dispute. Neither side, of course, was ready for war when it came. Britain was... Again, heavily engaged in the Napoleonic Wars, which had most of the British army deployed in the Peninsula War, which was in Portugal and Spain. And the Royal Navy was compelled to blockade most of the European coast. The number of British regular troops present in Canada in July of 1812 officially was around 6,034 which was also supported by Canadian militia. Throughout this war, the British Secretary of State for War and the Colonies was the Earl of Bathurst. For the first couple of years, he, you know, didn't have any troops to spare to reinforce North America and urged the Commander-in-Chief in North America, who was Lieutenant General Sir George Prevost, to maintain a defensive strategy. Now, Prevost was naturally cautious anyway, and he followed these instructions, concentrating on defending lower Canada at the expense of upper Canada, which was actually more vulnerable to American attacks and allowed few offensive actions. But the United States was also not prepared to wage a war. Madison had assumed that the state militias would easily seize Canada and that negotiations would follow really quickly. The regular army consisted of fewer of 12,000 men. Now, Congress authorized the expansion to 35,000, but the army was voluntary and unpopular. It didn't pay very well, and there were only a few trained and experienced officers. You know, at least initially. The militia objected to serving outside of their home states, and... They were not open to this. So they performed poorly against British forces when not on their home turf. Now, America, America's fight of the war suffered from being very unpopular, especially in New England. There were a lot of anti-war speakers that were very vocal over there. Quote, two of the Massachusetts members of Congress, Seaver and Widgerly, were publicly insulted and hissed on change in Boston, while another, Charles Turner, member of the Plymouth District and Chief Justice of the Court of Session for that county, was seized by a crowd on the evening of August 3rd and kicked through the town.
2: So, was it the politicians of this area that were vocal about uh, their displeasure with the war? Or their constituents were going after them because the constituents were
1: i think it was both okay depending on where you live depends on how you were affected by the actions of the british right so when you if you're in an area that the british are pretty much non-existent you're not going to care yet other areas like new york city for instance where there's a heavy british influence you're going to get a lot more pushback
2: Something like Georgia probably wouldn't care too much. Like you said, New York would have a lot of strong feelings while they're conscripting uh, sailors. They're also the major trade partner.
1: Yeah, any place with a major port, New York City, Boston, you know, places like that. Uh, The U.S. also had great difficulty in financing this war. It had disbanded its national bank, and private bankers in the Northeast were opposed to war. The failure of New England to provide militia units or financial support was a really, really serious blow. Threats of succession by New England states were also loud. Britain exploited all these diversions, blockading only southern ports for much of the war, and encouraging smuggling.
2: (laughs) Sorry, that just amuses me that uh, before the Civil War, there was almost a secession crisis in the North.
1: Well, the Civil War, the South was trying to succeed.
2: Uh, right, that, that, that's what I'm saying. Like, before the Civil War, I I had never heard before that the North had... Uh, Northern states had almost seceded as well in decades prior to the Civil War.
1: The entire area is in turmoil. It has been for a very long time, and it's a new nation. People are trying to figure out where they belong and, right. if they even want to belong. Right. This area was probably heavy in... British colonists either immigrants or national born loyalists to Britain
2: and plenty of people are probably thinking you know hey maybe we didn't do it right three decades back you know
1: right because remember that the loyalists went up north to Canada where Britain still had colonies so there's no reason that we can't assume that a lot of them stopped in Maine, in in these other areas.
2: And if modern politics is anything to go by, it's usually the folks in their 50s and up that are in office. The guys that may have been fighting in the revolution are now the ones sitting in office and having second thoughts about what happened.
1: Right. These guys could have been drafted into the revolution because there was a lot of that going on as well. So it's like we were drafted into this fight. We didn't like this fight in the first place. Let's not do it again. So on July 12th, General William Hull led a invading American force of about a thousand untrained, poorly equipped militia across the Detroit River and occupied the Canadian town of Sandwich, which is now a neighborhood of Windsor, which is in Ontario. By August, he and his troops, which now numbered 2,500 with the addition of 500 Canadians, went back to Detroit in retreat and surrendered to a significantly smaller force of British regulars.
2: Regulars being actual military...
1: British regulars are regular British soldiers trained, paid by the British government. Okay. And they also had Canadian militia and Native Americans and were led by British Major General Isaac Brock and Shawnee leader Tecumseh. The surrender cost the United States the village of Detroit and control of most of the Michigan Territory. Several months later, the U.S. went back a second time, this time at the Niagara Peninsula. On October 13th, the U.S. were again defeated at the Battle of Queenston Heights, and General Brock was killed. Now, military and civilian leadership remained a crucial American weakness until about two years later. The early disasters brought about American unpreparedness and lack of leadership and drove the U.S. Secretary of War William Eustace from office. Now, John Armstrong, Jr. succeeded him and attempted to coordinate a strategy late in 1813 with 10,000 men aiming to capture Montreal, and was thwarted by logistical difficulties, uncooperative and quarrelsome commanders, and, again, ill-trained troops. He lost several battles to, I mean, inferior forces, and retreated in disarray in October.
2: So, was it uh, a lack of training, logistical mismanagement, Um, inferior tactics, just a combination of everything. Lack of experience. Okay. At this point. While America was getting experience on the sea, uh, the army was essentially just on garrison duty. If anything, the militias were seeing.
1: Right. The Navy and Marines were seeing all the action. We're getting the experience. We're getting the experienced leadership that was needed and the army was atrophying they would fight with the native populations but until they're supplied by British weaponry it's really not that it's really not that big of a challenge
2: and then even if the, the militia may have more the complete lack of discipline on their part only compounds the problem
1: also they did not like fighting outside of their own home yeah Which is what a war necessitates a lot of times. You have to bring all your troops together in areas to actually advance to where you need them to go. And a lot of times you're not going to be fighting at home. So uh, it's. uh,
2: you were saying President Madison was expecting uh, the taking of Canada, for the most part, to be a leisurely stroll past the Great Lakes. And then in Quebec, that might be a little more difficult, but the Canadians will happily help us take Quebec.
1: Yeah, he thought that he'd just march in, say, hey, we're here to free you from the British, and they would be like, great, let's do it. But that's not the way it happened. He was very overconfident about the politics in the Canadian regions.
2: Well, I can only hope Navy does better when we get...
1: Well, now that you mention that, A decisive use of naval power came on the Great Lakes and depended on a contest of building ships. The U.S. started a rapidly expanded program of building warships at Sackett's Harbor on Lake Ontario, where 3,000 men were recruited, a lot coming from New York City, and they built 11 warships early in the war. In 1813, the Americans won control of Lake Erie in the Battle of Lake Erie, And cut off british and native american forces in the west from their supply base then they were decisively defeated by general william henry harrison's forces on their retreat towards nigeria at the battle of the thames in october 1813. tuscoma was a leader of tribal confederation he was killed and his indian coalition disintegrated while some natives did continue to fight alongside british troops they only did so as individual tribes or groups of warriors where they were directly supplied and armed by British agents. The U S controlled Western Ontario and predominantly ended the threat of Indian raids supplied by British in Canada and in the American Midwest, thus achieving, you know, a basic war goal, stop those attacks. Yeah. The control of Lake Ontario changed hands several times with both sides unable and unwilling to take advantage of the temporary superiority. Now, at sea, the Royal Navy blockaded much of the coastline, though it did allow substantial exports from New England. So again, we're New England's like, let's be friends. And they traded with Canada in defiance of the Americans. The blockade devastated American agricultural exports, but it did help stimulate local factories and produced goods previously imported. Now, the American strategy of using small gunboats to defend ports was, was... It was terrible. The British raided the coast at will. One of the most famous episodes was a series of British raids on the shores of Chesapeake Bay, which included an attack on Washington, that, you can guess it, the British burned the White House, the Capitol, the Navy Yard, and a lot of other public buildings.
2: Now, was it Philadelphia or New York City that was originally the capital?
1: Originally, yeah. it was Philadelphia, and then it changed to New York City before it went to Washington.
2: So how long was D.C.? Because that's just salt on the wound in the last decade, because, you know, building up a, a whole city... Out of a swamp is no easy Or cheap.
1: Yeah. So, Washington, D.C. was established in 1790. So, it had been around for quite a long while now.
2: So, still not great. But the infrastructure had been there for more than a hot minute.
1: Twenty-some-odd years they would have been established. So, the British power at sea allowed the Royal Navy to levy contributions, quote-unquote, on Bayside Towns in return of not burning them down to the ground.
2: So extortion.
1: Yeah, extortion. Okay. You pay us, we won't kill you.
2: Hey, as someone who would be living in this, uh, then I, that sounds like a great deal. I like living. Here, have some grain.
1: Now the Americans were more successful in ship-to-ship actions. They sent out hundreds of privateers to grab British merchant ships which, of course, damaged the commercial interests in the West Indies. After Napoleon abdicated his throne on April 6th, the British now could send veteran armies to the U.S. And by then, Americans had learned how to mobilize and fight. British General Prevost launched a major invasion of New York State with these new veteran soldiers, fresh from France. But the American fleet gained control of Lake Champlain, and the British lost the Battle of Plattsburgh in September. Now, General Provost was blamed for the defeat, and then he asked for a court-martial to clear his name. But he died before it happened. (laughs) The British then launched a successful attack on Chesapeake Bay, capturing and then burning Washington, looting Alexandra, but... They unsuccessfully attacked Baltimore after that. Now, the burning of Washington was, you know, of course, embarrassing, and led to Armstrong's dismissal as the U.S. Secretary of War. You get the Capitol burned, you lose your job.
2: That's, that's understandable. That's more than, uh, you know, sending the message to the wrong address. Yeah. So where did the United States hold government then in, I mean, I suppose not just the remainder of the war, but you don't just rebuild a city overnight. Did they return to New York City, since I assumed the old buildings were still there?
1: So they actually the attack happened when the house was in recess, Congress was in recess, and they considered removing the seat of government from Washington. But because they thought a temporary location would become permanent, they decided to stay. And it took about five years to rebuild the House Chamber.
2: So in the five years, what they do, just bring out, fold out chairs to the swamp and ruins and like, all right, you know, here ye, here ye. The stump is now going to be the podium. You have the stump. Yeah, why not? <laughs> <laughs> really, uh, really returning to the grassroots of government, I suppose.
1: Quite literally, with that stump. So the British invaded Louisiana and were defeated by General Andrew Jackson at the Battle of New Orleans in January, 1815. The victory made Jackson a national hero and then restored the American sense of honor.
2: And led to a hit song about 150 years.
0: In 1814, we took a little trip along with Colonel Jackson down the mighty Mississippi. Took a little bacon, we took a little beans, and we caught the bloody British in the town of New Orleans. We fired our guns, and the British kept a-coming. Wasn't nigh as many as there was a while ago. Fired once more and they began a runnin' On down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico. Looked down the river and we seen the British come. There must have been a hundred of them beating on the drum. They stepped so high and they made their bugles ring. We stood outside our cotton bells and didn't say a thing. Fired our guns and the British kept a-coming. Wasn't nigh as many as there was a while ago. Fired once more, and they began a-runnin' Down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico Old Hickory said we could take em by surprise If we didn't fire muskets till we looked em in the eye Held our fire till we see their faces well Then we opened up the squirrel guns and really give them Well, we Fired our guns and the British kept a-comin' Wasn't nigh as many as there was a while ago Fired once more, and they began a-runnin' down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah, they ran through the briars, and they ran through the brambles, and they ran through the bushes where a rabbit couldn't go. They ran so fast that the hounds couldn't catch them, down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico. Fired our cannon till the barrels melted down, so we grabbed an alligator and we fought another round. We filled his head with cannonballs and powered his behind, and we touched the powder off till the gator lost his mind. We fired our guns and the British kept a comin'. Wasn't nigh as many as there was a while ago. Fired once more and they began a runnin'. Down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah they ran through the briars and they ran through the brambles and they ran through the bushes where a rabbit couldn't go. Ran so fast that the hounds couldn't catch them. Down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico. <laughs> <laughs>
1: But it also ruined the Federalist Party's efforts to condemn the war as a failure. With the ratification of a peace treaty in February 1815, the war ended before the U.S. new Secretary of War, James Monroe, could put a new offensive strategy into effect. Once Britain and the Sixth Coalition defeated Napoleon, France and Britain became allies. Britain ended, the trade restrictions and the impressment of American sailors which removed two more causes of the war. After two years, the major causes of this war disappeared. So neither side had a reason to continue or a chance of gaining a decisive success to compel their opponents to see territory or give advantage placement for peace terms. So as a result of this stalemate, the two countries signed the Treaty of Ghent on December 24th, 1814, And it took two months for the peace treaty news to reach the U.S., so that fighting continued for two more months after the treaty was signed.
2: Hence the Battle of New Orleans taking place in 1815.
1: Exactly. The war fostered a spirit of national unity and an era of good feelings in the U.S. and in Canada. And it also opened a long era of peaceful relations between the United States and the British Empire. At long last, we were now friends. It only took two wars.
2: (laughs) Two wars, 30 years, a burned capital, an assassinated prime minister that we do not have anything to do with.
1: Yeah. So, now we're going to get a little bit deeper into these three theaters, if you like.
2: And those... Those three theaters, just to recap, would be the Great Lakes, the eastern seaboard of the United States, and the Gulf Coast?
1: Yes. Yep. Okay. The uh, Atlantic Ocean, the east coast of North America, the Great Lakes, and Canadian frontier, and then the southern states. Very good. You remembered.
2: I pay attention in class sometimes.
1: <laughs> so, in 1812, the Royal Navy was the world's largest with 600 cruisers and a lot of smaller vessels. Now, a lot of these were involved in blockading the French Navy and protecting British trade against French privateers, usually. But the Royal Navy still had 85 vessels in American waters. So, the Royal Navy's North American squadron was based in Halifax, which bore the brunt of the war. Since that's where your Navy is, that's where we're going to go. Usually the fleet there numbered one small ship of the line, seven frigates, nine small sloops and brigs, along with five schooners, along with five schooners. Now the U.S. comprised eight frigates, fourteen small sloops and brigs, and then no ships of the line.
2: And uh, a ship of the line is
1: purposely built battleship.
2: Okay, so. This era's man-of-war. Yep. Okay.
1: This is your heavy, heavy gunboat. Now, the U.S. has now embarked on a major shipbuilding program just before the war at Sackett's Harbor in New York and continued to produce a lot of new ships. Now, three of the existing American frigates were, were very, very large and very, very powerful, especially for their class. It was they were actually larger than any British frigate in North America, where, you know, the standard British frigate of this time was rated as a 38-gun ship, usually carrying up to 50 guns, with its main battery consisting of 18-pound guns. The USS Constitution, President and the United States, were rated as 44-gun ships, carrying 56 to 60 guns, with a main battery of 24-pound guns. Oh my. So that's the yeah, you can see the big size differential there.
2: Yeah, the larger average size of the camp and a noticeably larger complement of
1: Yeah. So the British strategy was to protect their own merchant shipping to and from Halifax, as you as you would. And also the West Indies. They also wanted to enforce a blockade of all the major American ports to restrict American trade. And because of their numerical inferiority, the American strategy was to cause disruption through hit-and-run tactics. So they would capture prizes and engage British vessels, Royal Navy British vessels, only under favorable conditions, meaning we're bigger than them, we can take them on. Or we have more ships in our fleet than they do, we can take them on.
2: They, They... Their battles carefully and only took odds that they were very, very confident about. Exactly. Okay. Which, to be fair, that's just smart tactics.
1: Most U.S. Navy and Royal Navy engagements were like that. If you're confident you could take them out, you go for it. If you were not confident you can take them out, you run.
2: And if it seems like a 50 50 shot, those aren't good odds. You you both run. Yeah, you both just observe and report and head back to base.
1: It also depends on the captain. If the captain thinks he's got something to prove, Mm. then he might say, screw the odds, we're going. But yeah, most likely, though, if it looks like certain death, you'll run. So days after the formal declaration of war, the U.S. put out two small squadrons, which had the frigate president... And the sloop Hornet, which was commanded by Commodore John Rogers. The frigates of the United States of Congress and the brig Argus was under Captain Stephen Decanter. You recognize that name, don't you?
2: That does sound familiar.
1: Now, they were initially concentrated as one unit under Rogers, who intended to force the Royal Navy to concentrate its own ships to prevent isolated units from being captured by his own powerful force. And at this time, large numbers of American merchant ships were returning to the U.S. with the outbreak of war. And if the Royal Navy was concentrated, it could not watch all the ports on the American seaboard. So, of course, this strategy worked. The Royal Navy concentrated most of its frigates off New York Harbor under Captain Philip Brook, which allowed a lot of American ships to reach home.
2: Now, when they reached home, um, did a lot of the ships and crews... Volunteer to become privateers for the American Navy then and uh, get refitted with uh, arms in order to, you know, help with the war effort? Or did they continue with their uh, shipping activity, but probably going to...
1: Probably whatever the captain of that ship felt was most advantageous and most profitable. Mm, Okay. So if they felt that uh, they could take merchant ships, then they would privateer. If they had, like, a very tiny boat that wasn't going to do much, but was fast, they would probably continue doing merchant activities. Okay. Now, Rogers' own crews captured only five very small merchant ships. And the Americans never concentrated more than two or three ships together as a unit after that. Now, on the Constitution, which was commanded by Captain Isaac Hull... They sailed from Chesapeake Bay on July 12th, and then on July 17th, Brooks' British squadron chased them off New York. The Constitution evaded her pursuers for a couple days, and then called Boston to replenish water very, very briefly. The Constitution then engaged the British frigate HMS Guerriere, and after a 35-minute battle, Guerriere had been demasted and captured and then was later burned. The Constitution? This is where she earned her nickname Old Ironsides. As many of the British cannonballs were seen to bounce off her hull. This is what we were discussing about a few episodes ago about armor.
2: Okay. Uh, So, it being wartime, and obviously capture of enemy vessels is the bigger priority than... Was the British ship sank uh, the derriere because they just didn't have a large enough crew to get both the Constitution and the Air back to port?
1: It was either because of crew complement or because she was damaged so much that they couldn't... It would okay. be infeasible to refloat her and yeah. put her into in commission.
2: Just com- completely impractical American forces being what you would need someone to tow it in another ship or two to protect both the air and the ship bringing it. And with only a handful, of, I think you said six frigates or eight.
1: Yeah, it wasn't very, very many ships yet.
2: Yeah. Okay.
1: Well, we'll get into more of that when we actually get into the actual battles. Right now, we're just doing a overview of everything. I see. So, once I'm able to dive into the battles, we'll we should be able to uncover more information.
2: Oh, okay, okay.
1: So Hall returned to Boston and claimed a significant victory over this, over Guerriere. And then on October 25th, the United States, which was commanded by Captain DeCantor, captured the British frigate HMS Macedonian, which he then brought back to port. Good man. At the end of the month, the Constitution sailed south now under the command of Captain William Bainbridge, which is another name we know. And on December 29th, off of Brazil, she found the British frigate HMS Java. After a battle lasting about three hours, Java struck her colors and was burned after being judged unsalvageable, which is probably what happened with the Guerriere. Okay. The Constitution, however, pretty much was undamaged. So the successes gained by the three big American frigates forced Britain to construct five 40-gun, 24-pound heavy frigates and two spar-decked frigates, the 60-gun HMS Leander and HMS Newcastle, and to raise three old 74-gun ships out of the line to convert them to heavy frigates. The Royal Navy acknowledged that there were factors other than the greater size and heavier guns the U.S. sloops, and brigs had also won several victories over Royal Navy vessels of approximately equal strength, and the American ships had experienced and well-drilled volunteer crews. The enormous size of the Royal Navy meant that many ships were shorthanded and the average quality of crews suffered. The constant sea duties of those serving in North America interfered with their training and exercises. So... This is another big difference between volunteer crews and crews that are forced into service.
2: Okay. Uh, And those ships, that the the heavy frigates that were commissioned, Mm -hmm. that isn't just, you know, you snap your fingers and then, oh, hey, look, I have a trio of new heavy frigates. Go on and sail to the new world. Give them hell. That takes time. Uh,
1: It does take time.
2: How long are we talking from commission to actually being seaworthy and battle-ready.
1: As long as the supply lines are... fine. A couple months.
2: Oh, wow, that's... Home contractors, what are you... If the British Empire can get heavy frigates in a matter of months, what are you doing taking, uh... over a year on some of these projects?
1: Well, nowadays, boats are a lot more complicated than they were back then.
2: That sounds like an excuse.
1: Well, yeah. Still true. <laughs> I
2: don't know, I just had it in my head, like, uh, commissioning a ship of the line like that would you know take years you know having to draft up the design get the lumber prepared properly you know build the frame and then the outer hull inner hull decks I imagine those cannons aren't something that you know are just barely installed on the ship probably having to put it through a trial run just to make sure everything's good and tight
1: well you also have to understand in this time the sea the boats were very very profitable this is how trade was done for the most part so these ship builders were very very good at their job okay and as long as they had the money to be thrown at the getting these ships built they were built quickly
2: so while assembly lines had not been invented yet it was uh, like the ship industry was akin to the auto industry is nowadays in how widespread and prevalent it was and it was very, very efficiently figured out how to go from order being placed... And here's a new... Yeah. Okay.
1: So the capture of three British frigates stimulated the British to greater exertions. More vessels were deployed on the American seaboard, and the blockade was tightened. And on June 1st, off Boston Harbor, the frigate Chesapeake, which was commanded by Captain James Lawrence was captured by the British frigate HMS Shannon under Captain Sir Philip Broke. Lawrence, who was mortally wounded, he famously cried out, quote, Don't give up the ship. Hold on, men. The two frigates were nearly identical in size. Chesapeake's crew was larger, but most had not served or trained together. So, new crew. The British citizens... Reacted with celebration and relief that the run of American victories had ended. So they think. Now, this action was, by ratio, one of the bloodiest contests recorded during the Age of Sail, with more dead and wounded than HMS Victory suffering in four hours of combat at Trafalgar. Captain Lawrence, as mentioned, was killed, and Captain Broke was so badly wounded that he never again had a command at sea. Now, in January, the American frigate Essex, under the command of Captain David Porter, sailed into the Pacific to harass British shipping, as they do. Many British whaling ships, they carried letters of mark, allowing them to prey on American whalers. And then they nearly destroyed the industry. Now, the Essex challenged this and inflicted considerable damage on... British interests, before she and her tender, Essex Junior, was captured off Valparaiso, Chile, by the British frigate HMS Phoebe and the sloop HMS Cherub, in March. You like that, Essex Junior?
2: Uh, I feel like that's the Bodie McBoatface face of. Well, she had
1: 20 guns on her, so not really.
2: Oh uh, no. Okay, so that a little less friendly than Bodie McBoat face. Yeah. A tender had guns? Yeah. Huh. I. I don't know. I. I, My grandfather served in the Navy uh, for. I think five years active, fifteen year, um, reserve, and he said his ship was a submarine. How he described it, I always assumed tenders were, primarily support craft for, uh, repairs and resupply. No real firearm. No real defensive measures, so to speak.
1: Now, yes.
2: Oh, okay. Back then, not so much.
1: Right. Our supply ships, our oil tenders, our sub-tenders, all, all the supply-side vessels, they're not armed. Okay. Now, back in this day and age, in the early 1800s, you had to arm your stuff.
2: Well, yeah. I, I suppose a completely unarmed supply vessel is just screaming, especially if it's taking Barton active... Uh, military maneuvers in a time of war is just screaming, come take me for prize. Come on.
1: Yeah. If they're unarmed, they're looked as any other merchant ship.
2: Which back in this time, if you're a merchant ship, just by flying the colors of a nation that you are at war with, you know, suddenly you're fair game.
1: Yep. You're a target. Mm -hmm. That's what the navies are targeting. Merchant ships disrupting the supply lines. And that still holds true for even up to World War II. That's why the German submarines went after convoys of merchant ships. And we did the same for German shipping, Italian shipping, huh. Japanese shipping. But, you know, we'll get more into that in World War II.
2: I was going to say, I guess that's the stuff they don't talk about because it's not nearly as uh, glamorous or able to be romanticized as much.
1: They used our losses as they call for solidarity against the enemy. Yeah. But yes, then kept their merchant losses as quiet as possible. The British 6th-rate cruiser class brig sloops did not fare too well against American ship-rigged sloops of war. The Hornet and Wasp constructed before the war were very powerful vessels, and the Frolic class built during the war were even more powerful. The British brig rigged sloops tended to suffer fire to their rigging a lot more than the British ship-rigged sloops. The ship-rigged sloops also could back their sails in action, giving them another advantage in maneuvering.
2: Now, batting the sails, that's effectively unfurling more sails off the side of the ship to help catch more wind.
1: Sails you were talking about, those are like lead sails. They oh, okay. give you extra push, and back sailing is going in reverse. They can set their sails in a way that will make their ship go backwards. Maneuvering is very important during sea battles. So because of all their losses, the British Admiralty made a new policy that the three American heavy frigates that had been tearing them up will not be engaged except by a ship of the line or smaller vessels in squadron strength. So an example of this was the capture of the president. It was by a squadron of four British frigates. And then a month later, the Constitution engaged and captured two smaller British warships, which was the HMS Sine and the HMS Levant. So the first one was an example of the new policy working. The second one was of the new policy failing or not following the new policy.
2: All the way from the top down, it was if you see any American frigate run, unless you're a ship of the line. Or you have at least three buddies with you?
1: Those three specific frigates. Okay. Because they were the biggest frigates that we had. And most effective.
2: I mean, that's certainly a morale booster.
1: Oh, immensely morale. All these successes in single-ship battle did raise the American morale. Even after the repeated failed invasion attempts of the upper and lower Canada. Hmm. But, of course, all these small victories... They didn't have any military effect on the war.
2: No. Oh, heavens no.
1: They did not alter the balance of naval power either. They did not impede British supplies or reinforcements. And they did not even raise insurance rates for the British trade.
2: (laughs) Oh, that's just... Oh.
1: These three ships were just a morale booster for the U.S. and a morale detriment for Britain.
2: Uh, the fact that insurance rate, insurance rates for shipping didn't go up despite what's going on. Listen, guys, yeah, we know those three frigates are scary, but what? it's such a small chance you'll run into them. And unless you're going to American shores, you're fine. Don't worry about it. We won't worry.
1: Well, until the privateers come into the picture.
2: Oh. Okay, so there's hope yet for, uh... Insurance rates to go up.
1: Yeah, hey, let's bring them into the picture. Okay. Because the operations of the privateers were a more significant threat to British trade than the U.S. Navy. They operated throughout the Atlantic, and of course, they continued until the end of the war, and probably, you know, a few months afterwards. They sailed most notably from ports such as Baltimore, and they reportedly. The took 1,300 British merchant vessels. Now, the U.S. Navy only took about 254.
2: That's not chump change.
1: Now, the insurer, we're going back to insurance, of Lloyd's of London, reported Hmm. that only 1,175 British ships were taken, 373 of which were recaptured. So they only had a loss of 802. And I say only. That's a lot.
2: Only with an asterisk.
1: And then the British were able to limit privateering losses by the strict enforcement of convoy by the Royal Navy. So we're back to establishing convoys again. And by capturing 278 American privateers. Now, because of the size of the British merchant fleet, Americans' captures only affected about 7.5% of that fleet. So it didn't result in any supply shortages or lack of reinforcements.
2: I mean, that's for the British. There's still a lot of material goods, though. I mean, in militaries being decimated, just losing ten percent of your forces, it sounds like the civilian shipping fleet lost almost ten percent. Yeah. Still a significant number.
1: Ten percent's eight hundred and two, according to British numbers.
2: Right. Right. Like, no. In the grand scheme of things, you know, the eight thousand two hundred ships that were active at the start of the war having about 7200 you're still fine mm-hmm. but in the purposes of material gains for america that's still quite a bit even if only half the ships were able to be uh, brought back for prize
1: now here's something that's surprising the british do not rely as much on privateering
2: i mean that makes sense considering having their navy
1: Right, because they are just fresh off of a war. They still had their navy built up. Hmm. So the majority of the 1,407 captured American merchant ships were taken by the Royal Navy. This war was the last time the British allowed privateering, since the practice was starting to become politically inexpectant and the diminishing value of maintaining its naval supremacy. Now, privateering remained popular in British colonies. This was also the last hurrah for privateers in Bermuda, who vigorously returned to the practice after experience in previous wars. The Bermuda Sloops captured 298 American ships. Oh my. Yeah. And private schooners based in British North America took 250 American ships and proved very effective in crippling American coastal trade. And capturing American ships closer to shore than the Royal Navy cruisers.
2: So, as someone who has grown up in the midlife, I must ask: Did we have piracy on the Great Lakes? Or I should say, privateers? Because I'm I'm enjoying the picture in my head of just uh, you know, some Wisconsinite. Hey there, you dirty British! Yo, know, get the heck off my lake!
1: Yeah, there was piracy on the Great Lakes.
2: Ah, Wisconsin, stay classic. Up till about the turn of the 20th century. What? Yep. Oh, my. Dan Seavey
1: was the last pirate, operating until February 14th. Or at least he lived until February 14th, 1949.
2: Well, I think we have a a Valentine's.
1: He was a sailor, fisherman, farmer, saloon keeper, prospector, U.S. marshal, thief, poacher, smuggler, hijacker, human trafficker, and timber pirate in Wisconsin and Michigan.
2: There's a biography I need.
1: Dan Seavey. (laughs) He's writing it down, folks. (laughs) (laughs) So, the small British North American squadron had difficulty at the beginning of the war in blockading the entire U.S. coast. Faced by the need to convey vessels against American privateers, However, as additional ships were sent to North America in 1813, the Royal Navy was able to tighten the blockade and extend it, first to the coast south of Narragansett, and by November to the entire American coast by May. So I think that's where we're going to leave it for today. Thank you guys for joining us. If you'd like to contact us, you can do so at US Navy History Podcast at gmail.com. And please, share this podcast with your friends. We're all going to grow with your help. Any last words? Steve?
2: We'd love to hear your reviews, and we'd love to read them on the air.
1: All right. Now, as I send Stephen back down to the Bills to pump it out with a straw, I wish you guys fair winds and following seas.
2: Oh, God, it's in my mouth. Ugh.
0: U.S. Naval History Podcast, departing.